Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Author Lauren Groff on her latest short story collection, Florida. Lauren Groff is the author of three New York Times bestselling novels, Fates and Furies, named by Barack Obama as his favourite book of 2015, The Monsters of Templeton and Arcadia, as well as the short story collection, Delicate Edible Birds. She graduated from Amherst College and has an MFA in fiction from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Gross Fiction has won the Pushcart Prize and the Penn O. Henry Award, among others, and has been shortlisted for the Orange Award for New Writers and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. In 2017, she was named as one of Granter's best young American novelists. Her stories have appeared in publications including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, One Story and Plowshares, and in several of the annual The Best New American Stories anthologies. She lives in Gainesville, Florida, with her husband and two sons. And I wouldn't normally say that last bit of the biography, but that is sort of relevant. It is relevant, a little bit. And today we're going to be talking about her latest short story collection, Florida. Lauren, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So what is it about Florida, first of all, I should say? What is it about Florida? (laughs) That's a very big question, isn't it? Uh, Florida is the punchline to every other state's joke. You know, Florida is what you think of when you think of radical American problems. Um, It is a microcosm of our much larger issues. Uh, So I moved to Florida 12 years ago, and I moved there because I was forced to. I didn't want to live there. I wake up every morning thinking, oh my gosh, I still live in Florida. But it has enabled me to have a life as a writer, and I'm very grateful. And I think that um, one cannot actually feel at home in a certain given place in order to to be a good, or at least um, a writer, right? I mean, I think happiness is antithetical in some ways to focus when it comes to the writing life. And I wouldn't say that I'm happy in Florida, but I would say that the people around me are. (laughs) And I have been able to publish five books in 10 years because I've been in this place. So it's a give and take. Um, but Florida is also, to me, not just the geographical state, right? It's it's many larger, more abstract things as well. And I think that when I moved there, I moved from upstate New York. Um, well, I mean, that's where I come from. I have lived all over the United States and in France and England, too. 
But I moved there and I was just blown away by how perilous it was. It, first of all, imperiled. We are very vulnerable to climate change and you can see it happening all the time, but it's also a very perilous place. We have termites or hurricanes. You know, we have alligators everywhere in the drains, there are alligators. Wildlife sort of is teeming and it kind of wants to kill you. The humidity comes into your bones and rots you from the inside out. It's just a very strange place. Um, so for me, it's, um, it's a state of mind also. It's a sense of dread and a sense of just peril. And indeed, not all of these stories are set in Florida, but Florida, this Florida state of mind follows the protagonists wherever they go, whether that's to Europe or, or South America or whatever. So say something more about that. What is the Florida state of mind? Well, the Florida state of mind is a feeling of just in, strangely increasing anxiety and dread that comes from both outside and inside. Almost like I, I like to think of certain of these stories as um, bubbles with, um, you know, the, the tension in a soap bubble where um, there's service tension, um, but there's internal tension and there's external tension. And there are all these different uh, elements sort of playing and, and allowing the story to sort of come to fruition. So, yeah, the state of mind is not just dread, but like helpless love, utterly helpless love and a feeling of being small in a very large place. I mean, Florida as a state of mind is, is incredibly complex. It's not just, you know, the Disney World version of the world that I think most people envision when they think about Florida. And also, obviously, you've already sort of explained this, I guess, but there's an outsider's perspective here as well. You've moved into Florida from the northeast, which obviously gives you a different impression to if you were a Florida native. Absolutely. Well, my husband is a Florida native, and it's not weird to him. <laughs> He's weird to me. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, to come from the outside means that you always maintain a certain distance, which means that you're never really seduced by some of the incredibly seductive things of Florida. I mean, if you have flowers blooming throughout the year, and in January when it's cold, you can see these giant camellias the size of your own head, I mean, that's a, a true, it's a vision of Eden in some ways, right? You have sunshine all the time, right? But sun, in where I live in Florida, it's the swamp. So it's sunshine pouring thickly over this darkness, dankness that nobody actually walks through or else, you know, things would get you. And I mean, the, the idea of an Eden crops up mm -hmm. throughout the stories, but it is a sort of... You know, a sort of Eden gone wrong. Yeah. I suggest, like a sort of weird Eden. It is. Well, I mean, Eden did go wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, that was the point of the story. Yeah, the point. <laughs> yeah. In Genesis, we, we could never go back there. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's aspirational, right? I mean, the, the whole idea of Eden is that it's something, it's nostalgic for a place that never actually truly was, um, right? Um, because the snake lived in Eden even before Satan, like, descended into him and, and started speaking in his voice. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's it's a very uh, complicated, very um, contradictory place in space of mind. Yeah. And the wildlife crops up again throughout the book. And in a way that almost, there's a number of books where the, the sort of dividing line between the characters in the stories and the Floridian wildlife sort of merge, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah, well, oh, so part of the soap bubble that I was talking about earlier is that there's a lot of resistance to domesticity um, in this book, but at the same time, 
the understanding that houses as physical structures actually are the shell for humanity in, in some ways. They're protective, right? But at the same time, they're being eaten by, by termites and hurricanes. Um, I say this, and we're going to have to tent our house, which is what we do in Florida every five years. You put a giant tent over it and you fill it with poison. Yeah, I just found out about this. It's not fun. Yeah, so domesticity and, and the, the feeling of um, wanting wildness and wilderness within you, while also knowing that a culture and community are what is um, supporting your actual life. This is something, this is one of those, those push-pull feelings in the book. There is a sense of almost envy about nature in this book. Like, I think that um, some of the characters in this book long to just throw, you know, set fire to their houses and go out into the night, but they, they won't. They wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. The weather. I mean, I think in pretty much every story, there's a a storm to a greater or lesser extent. Mm. Hurricanes in some. What's it like to live through one of those? Yeah, I've never lived through a hurricane actually. Um, so, uh, but I have lived through really large storms. You know, almost hurricane storms. And we have a metal roof, and the sound is like God dancing on your head, basically. Right? It's, it's so frightening that you do feel as though the things that protect you, your shell, have been unpeeled from your body and you're just all raw and vulnerable. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrific, actually. You feel, you feel very close to being an animal. Over what sort of time period were these stories written? So the first story in the book is Eyewall, um, and it's it's the most magical realism-ish. Um, and it's, uh, I think that I wrote it in 2009, which means that it's been around for a long time. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I can't write about places until I've lived there for a few years or I've left them a few years later. It just is one of those things that it, it, it seeps into you eventually, right? Um, so I didn't want to write about Florida and I actually I've resisted doing it, but it just so happens that all my stories for the past 12 years have been set in this strange space, this liminal, uh, dreamy space of Florida. I mean, I guess this answers the question, but I was going to say, you know, these stories have all been published out Elsewhere, whether mm-hmm. it's in the in the New Yorker or whatever, but they are they feel like a really coherent collection of stories. Obviously, they've all been written in the same place, but I mean, was there any sort of? I know one of the stories appeared elsewhere in a shorter form, but mm-hmm. has there been any sort of like rewriting to oh to massive make them sort of fit? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so I owed a book, and uh, I had been writing these stories all along, and they've been they have been um, put into the world and in a beautiful way too. I mean. There's nothing like being edited by The New Yorker. They're amazing. It's actually, you want to like cringe and say, I'm so sorry for giving you this terrible piece of nonsense that you just made into a beautiful story. But I didn't know exactly how the collection was going to come together until I reread all the stories together and realized that there was an argument I was I could build toward. And so from beginning to end, I did sort of, I, I sort of see a story collection, if it's working correctly, as being... Uh, a game of um, hot potato. I don't. Do you have hot potato here? I'm not sure. It's probably by, probably goes by a different name. Okay, so it, it's, it's a kindergarten game um, where you uh, pretend to have a hot potato in your hands, and it's uh, it's a ball. And the song is hot potato, pass it on, pass it on. <laughs> and so you have to pass on this hot potato, and whoever gets caught with the hot potato at the end 
is um, is out, right? So it's yeah, it's it's stupid. But we have a game called Pass the Parcel, which seems like a less capitalist version of <laughs> where at least you get something. <laughs> if you have the hot potato, you're you're dead. Um, so, yeah, but a story collection is I I think that um, a story collection is uh, passing around like increasingly rapidly this thing, um, and it's a question from one story to the other. And where you land is where um, the story collection has to bloom into a hundred different fragments, right? And, and so the the last story has to not only ask the same questions that have been asked throughout, but also change the questions. Okay, so then how is that approach different to when you wrote Fates and Furies, for instance? Mm-hmm. How is the short story collection come together differently to a novel for you? So, well, I mean, a short story collection is basically like you get lucky if you're able to write these stories over the span of time that you have, right? Um, and I don't foresee that I'm going to have another story collection for like 10 years because it takes me so long to write short stories. But a novel is different, right? So, so when I was writing Fates and Furies, I was writing it in opposition to my previous novel. I write everything in opposition to what I've done before, um, just because I think by the time that I start to work on them, I just want to kill everything I've done before. <laughs> so Arcadia was my my second novel, and it was uh, it's very much about utopia and um, bringing children into the world, and it's very very dark, and it was very very hard to write because it was as though I had sort of um, reached into my own chest, taken out my own heart, and was like doing surgery on it on a daily basis. It was just, I was going into a dark place. So in the middle of this, I thought, oh, my God, I have to start a new project because if not, I'm not going to survive writing this book. Um, and I thought, what is the opposite of Arcadia? It's opera, right? <laughs> it's it's big, broad, colorful strangeness. Um, it's a lot of sex. Um, and it's a lot of, you know, um, it, like twists. And so uh, I would get up and I put on the walls of my studio at the time, um, which was infested with lizards, um, these big pieces of butcher paper. And at the time, I thought I was writing two separate novels of Fates and Furies, um, and I wanted them to be able to re- be read front and back, So, uh, you know, which would be an amazing thing. But I didn't succeed in this, but I did succeed in writing a book. But um, So for a novel, you have this larger idea, and I just write draft after draft after draft after draft, throwing them out in between until I, I eventually find my way through, and then I have a working draft. Then I, you know, do the normal writing. But um, short stories, I wait until it's just it's um, it's so overwhelming. I can't see the novel I'm working on at the moment, and it's usually stories that I've been carrying around with me for a long time. I think the story in this collection that I've carried around with me for the longest. Is probably um, Ipoch because it started as a translation of Guy de Maupassant over 15 years ago, and then it morphed to historical fiction, um, which was terrible. Um, but I re- finished a whole draft of a novel, and then it morphed to this like amazing, like I actually really like this version of it. But it was a um, David Markson esque uh, story based in quotes um, that actual people and invented people that I created um, were saying about Guy de Maupassant, and he's sort of like a shadowy figure who never got to speak for himself but like you see Flaubert and the Goncourt and um, everyone started talking because everyone hated him um, and then eventually I was like oh no it's terrible because I hate this man I don't want to like think about him anymore and so it became a short story about someone who's unable to write about Gaeta Mufasant. Um so yeah so all these stories sort of come out through time through failure Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lauren Groff. We're talking about her latest story collection, which is Florida. And Lauren, I'm glad you brought up that last story just before we broke, because I, I want to look at some of the stories more closely. And there are five stories in this book, mainly told in the first person, apart from that last one, that are told from the perspective of a woman who has moved to Florida from the Northeast and is married and has two sons and is a writer. Um, why write in this register? And I'm not going to suggest these things are autobiographical, but one could certainly be mistaken for them being so. Yes. Um, I hate the biographical fallacy. I'm so glad that you you said that. Um, here's the funny thing. From the first I started publishing, people have been really eager to conflate author and work, right? And I think it happens more with women than it does with men. Um, I think that there is more of a sense of authority. It's it's the reader's fault, obviously, right? But, but when you see a, particularly a young woman, and I used to be young, um, a young woman writing, I think there's this knee-jerk reaction against her authority, which allows people to believe that the things she's writing about are her. So with my first novel, for instance, there was a hysterical pregnancy. And when I went on book tour, I was pregnant. And not once, but twice, someone stood up and asked me if I was sure I was actually pregnant. Right? Like, this is a terrible thing. So from the beginning... I have been playing with this, playing with this this feeling of um, bringing the reader in and sort of um, playing around with the reader's expectations of conflation between author and subject, because I'm not going to be able to overcome this, right? This is just something that happens, especially when people, especially people who don't know me, um, look at my biography, see that, and then um, make assumptions. Um, so I'm playing with people's assumptions. 
And in this particular case, you know, I am a scholar of novels, but this is what I do for a living, right? I don't teach. I just read. And, you know, I've been a fan of autofiction since St. Augustine. You know what I mean? Like, it's, you know, so I'm really interested in this. And it's a it's a form that's uh, old, very old, but people are doing it now more often. And I do like the way that it pretends to be more truthful than regular fiction. It's not actually more truthful, but it, it, it makes a pretense toward it. And I think that that gives the writer more rope to lie. Uh, so I was I was really interested in pulling the, the reader, and there's always a dance. You know, I think of a short story in particular, a novel also, as um, a dance between writer and reader where you're never, ever going to fully know what the reader brings to a text, right? You can't fully steer that ship, which is the reason why um, Goodreads and Amazon are so killer. Mm -hmm. um, but what you can do is you can project a reader who's smarter than you and um, or smarter than the writer, maybe not smarter than the book, because I think the book's always smarter than the writer. But you can project this reader and you can do a dance with the reader and it's a mutually agreed upon dance, but you, in certain ways, have tricks up your sleeve also, right? And and one of the dances is this feeling of closeness and distance that you, you can actually, you can spin the reader in. And I think autofiction is a way of spinning the reader really tightly in, like a tango. And it's interesting that you said that, you know, these are questions that uh, are most likely put to women authors, because I was going to say, you know, if you'd have given the character a son and a daughter, I wouldn't have even ask that question right. it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been obviously a representation of yourself but then you say that that wouldn't have mattered anyway that wouldn't have mattered anyway because you're, you're a different reader than most people are you know you. right <laughs> i'm sure that yeah. was a compliment <laughs> it's definitely a compliment everyone's a different reader but i i can't tell you how many times uh i've gone to book clubs and it's an honor to go to a book club i mean if they they're all buying your book you know that's a good thing um but to have People say use the you know the first or the second person when they're referring to um, the narrator, right? Like, why did you do this? And you're like, it's not me. <laughs> it's, it's but then again, there's so much beauty in it not not being you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, it's just um, it's an explosion. It's a little bit. Controlled okay, so I'll just get rid of all of those questions that say, what was it like when you fell off that stool? Oh, I have to tell you something. I was in, I was just in Napa Valley and um, I read that story out loud in a very, it was a great um, place to read it because it's like deep in a mountain, this cave, like full of wine carved out of a mountain. And I think people are already a little bit weirded out by the claustrophobia. But so I read this story about um, a, a mother falling off of a stool, like getting like severe concussion and I was at uh, the bar afterwards and some woman came up to me and started touching my head <laughs> she's like I wanted to feel where you you broke your head and I said no, that never happened to me honey this is fiction yeah yeah okay and again bear in mind that this is not an autobiographical representation of you in those stories. But these stories have been written over a quite mm. a long period of time. So how does that character that you're represented in those five stories develop over that period, do you think? 
So in the well, uh, there's an intentional sort of scope for this character. She has um, an arc. She has an arc. She does have an arc. A she. Um, so she, in the first story, we begin um, with her so anxious that she can't help yelling at her children. Not like this is definitely not autobiographical. <laughs> and so yeah, she, right. Yeah, right. And so she goes for a walk late in the night in this imperfectly um, safe neighborhood where she lives. And there are images uh, in, you're going to have to read the story, but um, there are images in the story that sort of replicate and complicate throughout all of those five stories. And then in the end, the power structures have shifted and she has undermined herself in a good, productive way, I believe. Um, And the very last image is um, an image of shifting power. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that first story has her walking through the neighbourhood, looking in mm-hmm. people's windows. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's not revealed until slightly the fourth story, definitely the fifth story, that she is a writer. But of mm-hmm. course, you know, as a writer, that is that is what you do. You observe people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're a voyeur. <laughs> Absolutely. We were, we were walking here to the studio here and, uh, I, you know... I, it's tourist season in London, and uh, it's amazing to hear what people feel free to say out loud <laughs> in public. It's incredible. Um, and so I really wished I had my notebook out and was writing things down because if you're a writer, you have to have this constant curiosity and an interest in not only other people but in the world at large. And in terms of, you know, you don't want a writer in the family. It's like having, like, an emotional assassin in the family in a lot of ways because they're just going to be ruthless. They're going to steal and they're going to they're gonna kill you. <laughs> and, it, yeah, it's a tragedy to have a writer in the family. That first story, the first story is called Ghosts and Empties. Mm-hmm. And the idea of ghosts or perhaps not literally ghosts but memories or even the sort of slippage of time is something that occurs mm-hmm. in numerous stories. And I'm thinking particularly of Eyewall, the story mm-hmm. which is of a of a woman who has decided to stay behind in a house on the coast when there is a uh, hurricane mm-hmm. approaching. Tell me something about that idea of, I mean, I guess, yeah, the sort of slippage of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's a slippage of time in the American South in a lot of ways, and I think it's predicated on the profound trauma that happened to not only the um, slaves who were there, but also the native people from whom, you know, the, the colonists stole um, all the land. And there, there feels as though every place you go is haunted. Um, everything is, the sunshine's haunted, right? And, and um, you know, I see ghosts everywhere I go, in places that have probably had no one die in them, I see ghosts. <laughs> like, I, I'm aware of um, ghosts all the time. And what, for me, a ghost is the memory of emotion, right? So strong emotion. And strong emotion in time is what's, fiction is, right? Strong emotion in time, in character, in words. Uh, It's almost sculpting something out of those elements. And so I was really profoundly interested in not only the Gothic elements of this haunting of the South or of Florida, but also the Gothic feeling of being a human beset by anxiety, which makes you afraid of the future, unable to handle the legacy of the past and so 
also unable to inhabit the present, right? And and in some ways, that is a very strong emanation of emotion that creates a ghostliness, I think. So I mean, it's just one of those many, many, many things that this book is really worried about. <laughs> there are a lot of, lot of anxieties. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to touch on a couple of the other stories. Sure. I don't feel that same narrator, seeing that we've been mainly uh, talking about those, oh, except Eyewall, of course. Um, the story... At the Round Earth's Imagined Corners, which I, I think is the only one that has a, a male main protagonist, mm-hmm. um, a young boy, and, and the man called Jude. Um, the story is named after a John Donne sonnet. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, At the Round Earth's Imagined Corners is... Um, uh, blow, angels, blow. It's a, it's a, oh, I love John Donne so much. You know, he's one of those poets that I go to uh, on days when I just can't write. Or I can't write well. I mean, you can always write, but you know, if you're writing fuck a hundred times, you're not really writing, right? So I read him over and over again, and in this story, it's just this. There's this profound longing and an inability to look at the self in a way that I think is replicated in in Jude, this main character. Who I can say this because he's never going to hear this. It's um, in some ways I stole elements from my father-in-law for, for this character. Um, um, and I think he knows because he's read the story. Um, but the, there's an intentional blindness that actually um, breaks my heart, both in the poem and in the story and the character itself. And then the one other one I wanted to talk about was Above and Below, which is mm. the story of um, uh, a young graduate student who basically, well, I guess like a Floridian snake, sort of like sluices off her, her identity, her life, her debts, and basically becomes itinerant and eventually homeless. Tell me mm-hmm. something about her. So I, um, we, are, we live in this neighborhood that's full of homeless people, which um, is actually wonderful and vibrant. And I, when we first moved into our house, there were, actually, there were people living under it because we have crawl spaces as opposed to basements. And for a while, you know, we had to be very tender about that. And... If you live among people who possibly don't have the familial resources that uh, my husband and I do, you start to see how close you are to them and how easily you can slip through the the social fabric and how thin the social fabric is. And now it's getting more and more holes in it, you know, and it just broke my heart, honestly, to see these incredible, smart, wonderful people um, and how because of bad luck, because of bad decisions, because of um, the tremendous cost of being alive in America, right, Um, just fell through, fell through the social fabric and ended up with nothing. I mean, I I know a number of graduate students who have nothing anymore, and they're people with PhDs, almost PhDs, you know, Um, they're doctors. You know, it, all it takes is a car crash in the U.S. Uh, in order to to send you into the tailspin or d- d- one visit to the emergency room. I mean, it's just it's it's heartbreaking. So, I I started thinking about this character, and I just wanted to see what it would be like to become free of material goods and have a feeling of liberation while also losing everything. That brings me nicely to um, the last question I'm going to ask, and then I'll I'll get you to read a bit of the book, if you would. Mm-hmm. And, well, I apologise for this question, because A, I'm sure you've been asked it many times before, but also no doubt, you will be, <laughs> no doubt you will be again and again and again. But as I mentioned at the beginning, Fates and Furies was listed as one of Barack Obama's favourite novels. 
What do you think the favourite book of the current president is going to be, Lauren? Oh, he can't read. Oh, he's not the president either. He's Ill- illegitimate. So, like, there's just a big black hole in the White House. Um, it's not actually, like, filled with a person. Um, yeah, no. Uh, the person you are speaking of, however, I haven't yet to say the P and the T word in the same sentence. He, he can't read. Cannot read. Legitimately can't read. So, no books. There are no books. But <laughs> Good Night Moon, maybe? Maybe Melania sits there and reads it? I don't know. <laughs> Well, on that depressing note, if you would... Uh, Make me cry. <laughs> yeah. If you would uh, read us a little bit of... I would love to. I don't have a copy of the book. So thank you. My copy. Thank you. I'm going to read uh, From Ghosts and Empties, and it's from the beginning. And the title of the, the story comes from a um, Paul Simon song from Graceland, uh, where he's... Yeah, I love that song. I have somehow become a woman who yells, and because I do not want to be a woman who yells whose little children walk around with frozen, watchful faces, I have taken to lacing on my running shoes after dinner and going out into the twilight streets for a walk, leaving the undressing and sluicing and reading and singing and tucking in of the boys to my husband, a man who does not yell. The neighborhood goes dark as I walk, and a second neighborhood unrolls atop the daytime one. We have few streetlights, and those I pass under make my shadow frolic. It lags behind me, gallops to my feet, gambles on ahead. The only other illumination is from the windows and the houses I pass, and the moon that orders me to look up, look up. Feral cats dart underfoot, bird-of-paradise flowers poke out of the shadows, smells are exhaled into the air, oak, dust, slime mold, camphor. Northern Florida is cold in January, and I walk fast for warmth, but also because, though the neighborhood is antique, huge Victorian houses radiating outward into 1920s bungalows, then mid-century modern ranches at the edges, it's imperfectly safe. There was a rape a month ago, a jogger in her 50s pulled into the azaleas, and a week ago, a pack of loose pit bulls ran down a mother with a baby in her stroller and mauled both, though not to death. It's not the dog's fault, it's the owner's fault. Dog owners shouted on the neighborhood email list, but those dogs were sociopaths. When the suburbs were built in the 70s, the historic houses in the center of town were abandoned to graduate students who heated beans over Bunsen burners on the heart pine floors and sliced apartments out of ballrooms. When neglect and humidity caused the houses to rot and droop and develop rusty scales, there was a second abandonment to poor people, squatters, We moved here ten years ago because our house was cheap and had virgin lumber bones, and because I decided that if I had to live in the South, with its boiled peanuts and its Spanish moss dangling like armpit hair, at least I wouldn't barricade myself with my whiteness in a gated community. Isn't it dicey? People our parents' age would say, grimacing, when we told them where we lived, and it took all my willpower not to say, do you mean black or just poor? Because it was both. White middle-classness has since infected the neighborhood, though, and now everything is frenzied with renovation. In the past few years, the black people have mostly withdrawn. The homeless stayed for a while because our neighborhood abuts Bow Diddley Plaza, where, until recently, churches handed out food and God, and where Occupy rolled in like a tide and claimed the right to sleep there, then grew tired of being dirty and rolled out, leaving behind a human flotsam of the homeless in sleeping bags. During our first months in the house, we hosted a homeless couple we only ever saw slinking off in the dawn. At dusk, they would silently lift off the latticework to the crawl space under our house and then sleep there. 
their roof our bedroom floor, and when we got up in the middle of the night, we tried to walk softly because it felt rude to step inches above the face of a dreaming person. You've been listening to Little Atoms. I've been talking to Lauren Groff about her latest story collection, Florida, which is out now in the UK from William Heinemann. Lauren, thank you so much for telling me about it. It was a tremendous pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.